0: Hello, I'm Dominic Gray. I'm Director of Projects at Opera North. Nasir Afsal OBE was born in Birmingham to immigrant Pakistani parents of Pashtun ethnicity. He's a British solicitor with deep and profound experience in the legal areas of child sexual exploitation and violence against women. He's a practicing Muslim with outspoken views in favour of women's rights and against forced marriage, female genital mutilation and honour killings. Nazir spent most of his career in the Crown Prosecution Service, rising to be Chief Crown Prosecutor for North West England in 2011, a role he held until leaving the CPS in 2015. In April 2016, he was appointed Chief Executive of the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners, significantly a post which comes with media restrictions he resigned the post immediately after the May 2017 Manchester Arena bombing so that he could comment freely on the attack. His most high-profile and seminal cases include the honour killing of 25-year-old Samira Nazir in Southall in 2005, the prosecution of disgraced former BBC presenter Stuart Hall in 2013, who was convicted of multiple sexual offences against girls and women, and in 2012 the prosecution of the Rochdale Sex Trafficking Gang. Since October 2017, he has been member of the Independent Press Standards Organisation Complaints Committee. In 2018, he became the chair of the Corporation Board at Hopwood Hall College in Rochdale, Greater Manchester. He's also National Advisor on Gender-Based Violence to the Welsh Government, and most recently, he joined the Advisory Board of Google's Innovation Fund for Counter-Extremism. His acclaimed memoir The Prosecutor came out in 2020 and in September 2022 he will publish his latest book The Race to the Top. The following recording was made in Leeds on February the 24th as part of the annual Liberty Lecture Series. The Liberty Lectures are produced by DARE, the partnership between Opera North and the University of Leeds. It was recorded in the Howard Assembly Room at Opera North.
1: And uh, good evening. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Dominic. Thank you so much for coming out on a dark, cold, bitter Leeds evening. Uh, and um, it's a dark, cold day for lots of reasons, and I'm sure we'll touch on events in, uh, in Eastern Europe as well during the course of the evening, but if you don't, I will. Um, well, what can I say? Uh, it, my journey, as I think uh, Dominic pointed out, began... In Birmingham, but it began before then because uh, my family were um, immigrants from uh, the northwest frontier of Pakistan. If you've watched carrying up the Khyber, um, pretty much there. But I think that was filmed in Wales, but you know what I mean. (laughs) You get my point. Uh, And uh, they, uh, my father and mother, came here because they wanted to give opportunities for their children that they wouldn't get. Uh, back in that part of the world. And, and that part of the world is where, for example, Malala was shot in the head, You know, where 151 other children were murdered a few years ago by Taliban terrorists. So I understand why they wanted to come here to give me the opportunities that I had. So they moved from the very traditional and tribalistic part of Pakistan uh, to the very traditional and tribalistic part of Birmingham, uh, where, I, where I was... Born uh, a long time ago now, and those of us who are old enough to remember the 60s and 70s, well, I certainly can um, remember that racism was extremely overt, and it wasn't because of your faith; it was just because you were different. Um, you know, being a Muslim only became an issue, I think, uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, but certainly back then, it was just simply because I was brown, and I was born in the uh, within sight of Birmingham City Football Ground. Uh, I know, I know you love your football, uh, and. Every Saturday afternoon, you just didn't go out. You knew that you'd be spat at. You knew you'd be sworn at. You knew you'd be abused. The skinheads were on the street. The National Front were, um, were you know, running wild. Uh, Enoch Powell was making speeches uh, up the road, just up the road in Wolverhampton. And people felt very, very scared, as I did, as my family did. But th- I think it was important to recognise that, uh, for me to say, that my family, my home, was a safe, loving environment. And I was delighted that I had that opportunity. There was uh, seven of us, my mum and dad as well. And that's nine of us in a three-bed terraced house. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. There's a little slide there. Um, my mum always wished there'd be a little plaque saying Nazir was born here, but uh, God bless her, it never happened. Uh, don't you dare suggest it. Um, but you know, having that experience, uh, as I write in the book, my first, strangely, my first trip. Uh, To Pakistan was when I was eight years old, we decided as a family, or I didn't decide, my father and mother decided, uh, that they would travel across the world to get there. And it was in the time when you could. So we're in a transit van, nine, nine, ten of us, traveling through Europe, through Iran, through Afghanistan, through Pakistan. It took us uh, about 30 days or thereabouts. And then suddenly I'm in, um, in northern Pakistan in 1970, and that's when I first ever, first time I ever spoke to some white people was there. Because the hippies had made it there before I did. <laughs> uh, and so you had the, the sound of Jim Morrison and I come from various houses. All of them had no money. And so literally I was going up there as an eight-year-old feeding them. Uh, and uh, chatting to them and understanding the journey that they had made. Uh, and, I, and also, I, 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 I'll be honest about this, I fell in love with my cousin. Uh, she came with us. Uh, she was eight years old, a little Yasmin, and we spent six months together. Um, literally, you know, she was my sidekick. Everywhere we went, she came with me. And then, uh, time to go back. And so we decided to go back the same way we came. And somewhere around Germany, she got ill. And this was before Google. You couldn't Google the the uh, what what the symptoms were uh, and um, you my father and mother were determined there's you know, 10 of us in this van we've got to get home we're not far away we're two days away we've got to keep going and they kept going and as we arrived in ostend in belgium she died and the next thing i knew was i'm sitting on a ferry in the in the van in a ferry as we crossed into england i'm holding my eight-year-old cousin's um body in my, I didn't know it was body, I thought she was sleeping, I'm um, playing with her hair and, you know, hoping that she'll be okay. And then we get to the other end and suddenly the first thing I see is customs officers taking the body away and, and everything else that flowed out from that. But it, it struck me, so hindsight tells you everything. I look back at that and think nobody else is going to die on my watch. And that really left a major mark on me and, and much of my journey has been really her journey, or what her journey could have been. And then when I was about 12 years old, um, my father, God bless him, he had a brilliant business where he was providing services, tea and biscuits and coffee to the British Army. He did that in Cyprus, he did that in Gibraltar, he did that um, in other parts of the world. And so when the Northern Ireland Trouble started, he thought, great opportunity, we can start doing it over there. And he went over there with, with my elder brothers and started doing that. And then, um, shockingly, my uncle was shot dead by the IRA. And he was shot dead in such a way that he was in the back of a van. He was t- pulled into the back of a van with a, a, another, another cousin of mine and shot through the face. And my cousin, who was, who was somewhat younger, was told, go and tell Mr. Ralph South to get out of Northern Ireland now. And God bless him, my father stayed another 10 years. And I think there was something about that. You know, I'm only here, he said, to earn money to support my family. I've got no political affiliation. I've got no other interest that this is all I can do. This is all I've been able to do. And I heard those conversations and realized there's something more to life. There must be something more to life than simply just following the process. Uh, and the other thing that needs to be said is I had no role models. We, you know, think about it. Um, on TV you had Love Thy Neighbor. Remember that? Uh, or Exchange um, Half um, Yeah. And, and those, those were your brown role models or your black role models. Um, so you know, I lived on... I, I, I literally would go to school I'd come out of school, go to a madrasa, which is a, where you learn the Quran for an hour or so, an hour and a half, and then I would go to a library. And that was my existence for about 10 years. And so, I, you know, literally, the only people I knew then that I thought I wanted to emulate in some way were, two, were Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi, you know, real role models. Uh, but they were both lawyers. And what struck me was that they used law as a tool for change. It wasn't about process. It wasn't about filling in forms. They realized that law was a way of being able to change the world for others. And that really resonated with me. So when I had that conversation with my dad and uh, and said to him, look, I want to study law, and he said, why? Um, You have to think about what it felt like as as an immigrant family. They always had a suitcase packed because they'd seen what happened to the Ugandan nations. They'd seen that at some point, somebody somewhere would get board with us and send us out of the country and so when I said to him I want to become a lawyer he said no no we need you to be a doctor or an engineer or a scientist because those are skills that will be very useful back in northwest Pakistan lawyers got plenty of those and you know I understood why he was saying that but that's what I wanted to do and i uh, I think it was the brave of him and brave of my whole family actually to say right Let him pursue his passion. And I think I've continued that with my children, but it was a big deal for them to do that. I went to university in Birmingham. Um, What was university? Back then it was uh, a laugh. I don't don't think I studied very much. Uh, I stood as a sabbatical officer, vice president of Student Union for a year. Um, This was the time of Margaret Thatcher and uh, and that period, and uh, divisiveness and the Brixton riots and the Toxta riots and all that stuff. And I I think that's when I began to get more engaged uh, in society more generally about what society uh, challenges would bring us. And then I decided that I wanted, uh, well, I didn't decide anything. I thought the first thing to do is become a lawyer, and therefore to become a lawyer, I have to do a bit of, uh, a bit of practice. So I, I moved into a firm of solicitors in Birmingham, and I decided initially to do, well, I didn't have any choice. Uh, you, I did a bit of probate, the most boring thing I've ever known in my life. Uh, I did a bit of commercial law, the second most boring thing I've ever done in my life. And then I started doing some criminal law. I thought, actually, this is quite entertaining. This is quite interesting. I could talk about it when I got home. I you know, really was enjoying that whole concept. Um, I hadn't told you that. I got married at university. I'm, you know, I'd been married three times, ladies and gentlemen. My first, my first wife was Irish Catholic. My second wife was Hindu. My third wife was born Sikh. I've done my bit for multi-faith engagement. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so when I, home, when I got home, I was able to talk about criminal law in ways that perhaps I hadn't done before. Uh, I seemed to be enjoying it. And then something happened. And I was in a Police station giving advice to a suspect uh, charged, or uh, not charged yet, but being investigated for a rape. And this was the day. These were the days before video disclosures. Now, God forbid that you're a victim, you will give evidence on a video, and that will be your that will be your evidence. Back then, you had to deliver a statement, often taken by a male, talking about the most intimate things that happens to you. And then, when you are giving advice to the suspect, you you read to him the account of the victim uh, in order to get his um, well his account and I realised that the guy I was talking to and reading to was getting off again on what he had done to this woman and I thought I can't do this I did professionally I finished that, that particular conversation uh, left the office I, this is quite a common occurrence and resigned <laughs> I'm not going to do this anymore and then the opportunity of being a prosecutor came up and the prosecution service was brand new brand spanking new uh, until 86 uh, the police did their own investigations and did their own prosecutions. They instructed their own lawyers, and that led to uh, Birmingham Six, Guildford Four. Do you remember them, remember them all? Uh, there was nobody checking the homework that the police were providing, and so it was necessary to have an independent prosecution service. It was necessary, and it was—you know—now it's de rigueur; everywhere has it. But back then, it was brand new, and it was something that the government were, I think, forced into doing. They didn't want to do it, but they had to do it. And then, but they did—they they did something which. Uh, when you don't want a policy, this is what you do. You don't fund it. <laughs> right? uh, so I joined the, the CPS, uh, and I moved to London. Uh, at that time, the best decision I ever made in my life, but you know, I moved to London. But, but literally, my marriage was broken up, so <laughs> two things came together. And then wh- I'm now looking at, working in an organization that's absolutely hated, hated by the police who've lost their uh, responsibility, their power to make decisions, um, and well, that's what they felt. Uh, hated by the defence community because so many defence lawyers became prosecutors. Hated by judges because they were now being challenged on some of the things that they were—they were, they thought they used to get away with. Uh, hated by the public because the, all the public saw were, were articles in newspapers saying CPS have lost a file here, there. We didn't have digital files. You know, we were under, under-resourced, uh, understaffed, and mistakes were being made. Um, so across the board, we were being hated. And so I thought, hang on a minute. Firstly, what a massive opportunity it was to be working right as I did in central London, right next to Scotland Yard as it was then, um, and being working in the central London courts, dealing with the most high-profile cases at a time when we didn't have the bane of our lives key performance indicators. You know, Nobody cared how often I went to court, what I did. There was no major... Um, now there is a process, so, you know, certain cases are only dealt with by senior lawyers. So I was dealing with cases way above my pay grade. Now I was dealing with multiple serial killer after about two years of prosecuting, you know. And I thought, wow, this is a real opportunity. Let's get on with it. Let's make the most of, of this opportunity and learn as much as much, much as you can. And uh, initially, uh, I didn't have rights of audience in the Crown Court, Um Barristers have that, solicitors didn't at that time, and then suddenly I got uh, those rights, and I'm, there I am now I'm in the Crown Court before a jury, and, and I'm presenting these cases, and I'm really enjoying it, and, and learning so much. And, and you, we were allowed to fail, something that perhaps we're not allowed to do anymore. And we were allowed to fail and make mistakes, but again, when, you know, I've said in my next book is about racism at senior leadership level. You know, it doesn't mean that when you reach the top that suddenly racism stops. I remember that on uh, so many occasions, even as a prosecutor and growing and developing as a prosecutor, how people, some people, uh, were, um, were commenting on whatever, whatever it was that they wanted to comment on based on my difference or based on what they saw as my difference. When I got my OBE, which was uh, in 2004, a very senior prosecutor, um, white senior prosecutor turned around to me and said, you only got that because you're brown. That was a, th- you know, that, that is the, that sadly was the kind of thing. And there were lots of events and uh, all the opportunities for deciding where the big cases went were made on a Friday evening down the pub. I didn't want to go Friday evening down the pub. So, you know, by, by bias, by discrimination, you were denied those opportunities. But I, I literally kept knocking on that bloody door in order to take on these cases. And I would take on the ones that nobody else wanted. It's as simple as that. Or or they thought were too difficult. Uh, For me, that was... I get bored very easily, ladies and gentlemen. uh, And I decided that the only way to avoid that was to take take on challenging cases. Uh, So I remember... uh, The other side of that is, is about what I said about the police. They didn't trust us. So given that I was walking past Scotland Yard every day, I just popped in. And I'd sit down with senior officers and talk to them about how we can strengthen the cases they were dealing with or they were advising on or they hadn't arrested suspects for. And they they're beginning to warm to this. We're on the same side, actually. And I remember on one occasion, some officers came to me and said, "There's there, um, Chris Lewis, do you know anybody, know cricket? Uh, England cricketer. had walked into a police station and said that he'd been offered money to throw a match. And these officers came to see me... Um, you know, well, I'm seven years in, I'm still a baby prosecutor. I don't prosecute babies, but you don't know, get my point, I get my point. And, uh, and they said, Nazir, look, can, this guy's done this, he walked in, he's talked about this. Uh, can you explain this to us? And I said, um, uh, you mean corruption, gambling? No, no, cricket. <laughs> <laughs> so I explained cricket to them uh, and, uh, and then subsequently led to the first ever international cricket uh, corruption investigation worldwide. Uh, to the point where loads of people were arrested in India, Malaysia. and, and There was me at the centre of all of this, and I thought, what the hell? You know? and, and it was a brilliant really opportunity. And then when the case was over and done with, the cricket authorities created something called the International Cricket Corruption Unit, which is the first time ever, that, I think first time for any sport, a unit dedicated to tackling corruption within the sport. And it was set up in Dubai. And the first two members of it, those two officers who came to see me who knew nothing about cricket, So, anyway, tax free. Um, They had a wonderful life, but timing is everything. It wasn't for me. But the point is that I was dealing with casework that, quite frankly, was way above what I should have been dealing with, but I was welcoming that. And then 2001, and this this, this says something about Sir David Calver Smith QC, who was a DPP then. Um, 9 11 happens in September. Three months later, I become uh, Assistant Chief Crown Prosecutor for London, Um, the first Muslim uh, at that grade. Um, the young, strangely, I was the youngest there's ever been, amazingly. Um, but, you know, it was brave, bold, courageous. But I, actually, I was the best person at that time. Sometimes we forget that, you know? Sometimes we seem to think of, it is tokenism, whatever it might be. You know, I felt I was the best person, and I'm glad that he saw that, and I'm glad he appointed me. But then the next thing that flows from that is now... I'm responsible for 150,000 prosecutions a year, uh, everything from uh, road traffic to serial homicide and everything in between. Uh, I'm managing 800 lawyers. If you manage one lawyer, you know how bad that must be. Um, and, uh, and I'm trying to deal with uh, the casework in the heart of the greatest city, well, well at that time, uh, of the world. And I think there was a sense that I was really, I had arrived, I think, I, my, my personal view at that time was. But then, Something struck me, is that we, as an institution, uh, were meant to be the public's prosecutor, but we didn't involve the public at all. Not at all. And there was a problem. The problem was uh, we misunderstood a word in the statute. The word was independent. Because independent was led, I know what independent means, I'm sure you do, but it was believed to be detachment. But actually, if I'm, if I'm in the same room, same room as you, and you're telling me stuff, that you are actually affecting my judgment. And I, I, and I thought, hang on, no, that's not true. We can all disagree, but I'm better informed when you tell me stuff. And so I started going out and engaging... Uh, this is what, uh, basically, this is what I got my OB for initially, was about engaging with communities, understanding the impact of crime, and therefore ultimately being able to change the way we operate. So there was, a, there was another knife crime epidemic, there's been plenty of those, but there was another one about 2003 uh, in London. Uh, several uh, young men were being killed, and I said to my teams, right, we need to talk to young people who are most impacted by this crime. And my teams, to a T, to a all of them said, yes, let's invite them to our offices. Guess how many turned up? (laughs) I said, no, no, we go to them. Oh, <laughs> I can hear that shiver amongst the, so many. So I said, I'll go, I'll go. So I ended up, uh, for example, I was above a bookmakers in North London, in Harlesden, North London, talking to all these young men wearing bandanas across their faces as if I could ever identify them, you know? Uh, but we had a great conversation where they talked about the, the, fact, the effect of environment and education and, and poor policing and um, social services, children's services, local authority. All the issues don't excuse what they were doing, but explained what they were doing. And I then went back with, the, with new, newly armed with this information, uh, and the first thing I, somebody said to me was, you didn't do a risk assessment. <laughs> I said, Oh, well, I'm back now, right? <laughs> Everything's funky dory um, But then the next thing I did was, what do I do with this information? Do I just hang on to it? And, no. I said, what I'll do is I'll talk to the home office. And I, Again, we had then a home office that listened. And I sat down with them and they come up with the first ever serious violent crime uh, strategy, first one ever. Uh, and within a very short space of time, we saw knife crime drop significantly. Um, amazingly, uh, we had a st- that strategy saw the light of day again about three years ago when Theresa May took it out of the filing cabinet. Um, but, you know, it worked 20 years ago. And I thought, hang on, this is great. So. We can improve and the lot of the citizen by talking to the people who are most impacted by these crimes. And so I started opening the door left, right and centre. Uh, and I invited NGOs and groups of um, uh, survivors and et cetera, come and talk to me about your issues. And, and there was one particularly particular, you mentioned uh, forced marriage. Um, there were a number of uh, organisations that worked with forced marriage who said Nazir, can you try and convene something for us? And so I I said, yeah, fine, I'll I'll organise a conference. And um, I'll organise it in central London, I'll organise it. Uh, I invited all these parliamentarians, and initially, of course, the reaction was, "Ah, we're too busy, can't come. So I said, OK, there's a lovely hotel right opposite Parliament. (laughs) Guess where I had it? Uh, And I said to them, right, you can pop along for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, listen to a survivor. And to their credit, many of them did. But that was a real eye opener to me, to everybody else. At the time, it was the first conference that we'd had in this country to tackle forced marriage and honor based abuse. That's what I thought. Subsequently, I learned it was the world's first conference on forced marriage and honor based abuse. And when, we had, when we'd had that conference, I could have done what I normally do, which is, right, I thank you, I've, I've done my convening session, I now go on to do other things. But the women's groups, the NGOs in particular, said, no, no, no please don't. Two things we need from you. One, no man's talking about this subject. Uh, and secondly, you, ha- you have the ability to open doors for us. But we can change the way things are being handled. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll try that. You f- Tell me what's going on. You know? Explain it to me. Don't assume, uh, as people might do, because you're brown, you might not, m- must know something about this. You know, nobody ever forced me to marry. So I didn't know. And so they shared that information with me, and I thought, right, we could do something here. And so, again, I went to the home office. and I, but It needed to be brought in the home office. I got everybody. I got education, health. Uh, policing, you name it, all around a table. We defined, if you go online and find the definition of honour-based abuse, that was me, that was that one year's worth of work that we, we put the meetings together. It, you looked at how guidelines have been developed for agencies. Again, that was what, the work we did. Um, but it was also important to get people on side. And by people, I mean the agencies, the organisations, the, inst- the institutions that make up this country. And literally, the only way I could think of was to scare the living day out of them. Um, and that was, you know, what I did was ask my teams, can you go back through your casework, what, identify cases like this, and tell me where we failed. And they did. And then I would use that information when I sat down with whichever organization and say, right, do you want this to happen to you? And uh, invariably, they would say, no. Uh, and can, we help, can you help us develop some, um, some new approach? But it was important to tell stories. And you mentioned some of the cases that... You know, the first one I remember was, in, was a, a young girl called Roxana Naz who was murdered by her mother uh, whilst her brother held her down. And um, uh, that was because she was pregnant with her boyfriend's baby. And then when the trial was happening, the mother was asked, why did you kill your daughter, uh, whom you love so much? And the mother said, it was her destiny. I thought, oh, we're, we're up against something here today. When it's not... It's not what you're normally used to in, in homicides. And then the more and more I looked into it, the more cases I became aware of, I didn't know that we were having at least a dozen killings a year in this country which were honour-based abuse related. You know, And the more I learned, the more it was necessary to understand the victim's experiences, to understand what happened, um, because invariably the family or members of the family are responsible. Um, which is different to most homicides. If you are, I don't know, if your child is murdered, you, you're the, or pu- 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 you lose, disappears, or something, you will go to the police and re- refer this. But if you're responsible for the murder of your own child, the police will never find out. And, of course, what was happening is the institutions, because of institutional bias, weren't even bothering uh, in listening to the voices of, the, of, of people of color, for example. And so Samara Nazir was one you mentioned. Uh, people make assumptions that, it 's poor people with poor education so Mara 's family were extremely wealthy. They owned large prop- property, large of property in West London. She had been educated at Kingston University. she um, uh, set up her own business, but she fell in love and she fell in love with this refugee. Uh, same faith, so it's not, you know, it wasn 't about that it was somehow he, uh, he impacted on the, the status of this family and Um, Her mother took Samara to her boyfriend and said to her boyfriend, please, I beg you, please wash wash your hands of her, or I don't know what will happen. And he said, I love her. How can I do that? Two hours later, Samara was stabbed 18 times in the presence of two infant nieces who were splattered with her blood. Two hours. And it taught me there what we, as authorities, need to do. We can't do the come back tomorrow. Because there isn't a tomorrow. The, the first contact is the most important contact. And that's something that we now accept. Uh, if you work in this field, you will know that's the mantra. But it wasn't the mantra. And people like Samara were dying day, daily. And the thing with Samara was, uh, amongst many things, was that when uh, you know, it was a 16-year-old, 17-year-old cousin that, that wielded the knife. Her brother was responsible, as was her father. And I charged all three. But to get the evidence against them, we had to use um, the same techniques we would use for organized crime. Listening devices, uh, that kind of stuff. Because there there's a real code of a murder. Nobody was talking. Nobody wanted to talk. And so we had to breach that. The first time we put a listening device in a fish tank, and all we got was... <laughs> um, but you know, I think they learned from that experience. Um, and so we got the evidence, and we brought the case. And then... Then I looked at the brother in the trial, the Obey, and I thought, and I realized, well, I learned that he loved his sister more than life itself. And yet, because of this quote unquote issue of honor or the dishonor, he was prepared to be party to her murder. What takes you on that journey so quickly? The father, uh, well, he, he died just before, as the jury went out, so God got him before the jury got him, but they were all convicted. And so the point is, bigger point here, is about don't make assumptions about who might be a victim. Don't think it's about class or wealth. It can be anybody. Invariably, though, it's a woman. And this is what struck me early doors, really, um, was that um, we were were scratching the surface when it came to violence against women. And then there was a a critical case, which I'm sure you're familiar with, I hope you're familiar with, and that was the murder of Banas Mahmoud. Now, if you saw Keely Hawes in an ITV drama... I don't know, I've lost track of all time, is it two years ago, a year ago, uh, called Honor, I think it's still available on the ITV hub, that's this case. And Banaz was 16, forced into marriage, um, and two years of, of, of horrible treatment by her husband, eventually her family took her back in, but extremely reluctantly. And Benaz then falls in love, 19 years old, she falls in love with another Kurdish boy. And she is seen kissing her boyfriend outside of Morden tube station in South London by some busybody in the community. And that busybody then goes to her father and uncle and says, how dare your daughter kiss somebody in public? Now, I have no doubt that if somebody said that about my daughter, uh, he'd be uh, buried somewhere. Uh, But anyway, the point is, the immediate response of the father and the uncle was, right, Okay, Uh, they set up a meeting, eight men around a table, and decided Bernards must die. She was subsequently abducted off the streets of London. Uh, she was raped. I know she was raped because we put a listening device uh, in one of the, um, the murderers, uh, well, it, so the, we listened to what he had to say, and he said, um, "I raped her because I wanted to know. I wanted her to know who was in control before she died." And she was strangled and then buried in a suitcase 100 miles up north. And there was a brilliant investigation by DCI uh, Caroline Good, um, who Keely Horse plays in the. In the But, you know, she, Caroline, understood. And if you don't understand the issues, then uh, nothing would ever come of it. And it eventually ended up, as it currently stands, well, two of the men, by the way, who were responsible, fled to Iraq. And we learned that they were really happy in Iraq and celebrating how they'd suddenly restored the honor of the community. And so we didn't have extradition treaty with Iraq, but I persisted, and we got them back. And they were convicted too. So there are now five men in prison for life, for the murder of a 19-year-old girl for kissing a boyfriend outside of a tube station. This is what we're up against. Totally irrational. Totally irrational. You can't imagine why somebody would want to do that, but they did. But then we learned some other things. On at least two occasions. On one occasion, her father walked into the room uh, with Bernice's room, with Marigold gloves on and a bottle of brandy, and said, drink this. She didn't drink. She wasn't a drinker. What do you think he was up to? Uh, She managed to uh, smash a window, run down the street, approach a woman police officer, uh, and the woman police officer, seeing this girl with alcohol in her breath and blood on her hands, threatened to arrest her for drunken disorderly behaviour. And then on another occasion, when an officer did take her somewhat seriously, uh, if you watch, there's a documentary called Bernard's Love Story on YouTube, um, which won the Emmy that year. Uh, yeah, I mean it, but I mean that's not the point. Uh, go, and, look, go and watch that, because you'll see the interview that took place with Bernards. And she hands over a list of the five men that will kill her to the officer and says, so what now? And the officer says, we'll get back to you. Do you think that would have happened if it wasn't for a young brown woman? She wasn't a young brown woman from a, a particular migrant family. No. And that, so racism was a play here. Uh, and... We could have prevented Bernaz's death on more than one occasion. And then the next thing that happened, well, once this has come out, uh, was I realized that what was happening during the trial is that young women were walking into NGOs and saying, my family have told me that I will be the next Banaz." This is why I, I, I often refer to violence against women as gender terrorism. Because what they were doing, what other people were doing, was using that murder, Banaz's murder, to threaten their own children. And say, this will be your outcome if you don't behave, if you don't listen to me. And that, I think, is some, pe- some people don't understand. It goes beyond that family. It goes beyond that victim. It goes much wider than that. And so I did a number of things. One is we need to change the law. And one thing that um, uh, we didn't have was anything like a protection order. So we, there was a bit of legislation going through Parliament which would have created forced marriage protection orders... But it was a private member's bill. For those of you who don't know that, what that means, it's not a government bill. So the government weren't supporting it. So it was unlikely to become law. So, uh, and I realized the reason for that was because it, costs, it would have cost two million pounds a year to introduce it. That was the reason. So I sat down with somebody called uh, the Attorney General at the time. Uh, and I said to him, do you know how much it costs? Well, yeah, he knew the answer. Do you know how much it costs to investigate and prosecute one murder? It costs 1.5 million pounds. I said, if we can reduce the number of homicides by one or two, we pay for this. And to his credit, he said yes. He persuaded the prime minister, and the law became law. And since that time, so since 2008, more than 3,500 people have been given recipients of protection orders. That's 3,500 lives that have been saved by that tiny bit of legislation. That is worth getting up for in the morning, isn't it? And the youngest recipient of a forced marriage protection order in this country was five years old. That's what we're up against. So we, legislation was in place. Guidelines were in place. We, the police had it. The prosecutors had it. We had specialist teams, et cetera, et cetera. But I made a point I made earlier on about that a victim is going to go some. It won't automatically go to the police. They may go to a hospital, to a GP, to a midwife, to a woman, and explain what's happening to them. So we needed everybody to be upskilled on this. And so, you know, you know, you know when you go on a tour and you get... Um, you get a T-shirt with all the places uh, on the back. My T-shirt would say, Royal College GPs, Royal College of Midwives, Royal, you know, Coroner Society of Great England and Wales. I went everywhere that year to explain to them, to scare the shit out of them, <laughs> uh, explain to them why they needed to change their approach. And to their credit, they all did. And it got to the stage that by 2009, the number of homicides had halved. So we had saved lives, and we continue to save lives because of that kind of effort, where people understood what they needed to do. Now, I've got an issue, which I'm sure we'll touch on later, that we've been sliding backwards over the last few years. But we made some massive progress back then. In fact, so much so, the American State Department came to me and said, Nazir, uh, we, we would like to learn about what you've been doing over there. And I said, for the Americans to think that somebody's better than them is something, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Uh, And and I went, and I I went a couple of times to New York, and I I explained to the GAs and everybody else over there. And strangely, those invitations stopped in November 2016. I don't know who was elected back then, but whoever it was, uh, one of his first decisions was to say, Nazir is not coming here anymore. (laughs) Anyway, um, so we put everything in place. We put everything in place to fix things. And then, so it was necessary to move on. I decided to move on, in terms of my own... Uh, where I could focus. And I, did, you know, I wanted to focus on the crimes that were hidden in plain sight. I wanted to focus on the crimes where the victims had not been heard, not been listened to. Others could do the others. That was my thinking. And so, Baby P, you all know Baby P? I won't mention the case. The case is relatively straightforward. A child being murdered by those who cared. What it taught me, though, is how, what we are like as a country. There are four things we do when there's a crisis. Remem- remember this every time there's a crisis. The first thing is that somebody's head must roll. Do you remember the head of social services was told to resign? And and she did. She was told to resign by somebody called Ed Balls. I wonder what happened to him. The second thing that happened is that we think we need to rewrite all the rules and the processes. And they decided to bring in brand spanking new tick box. Can anybody think of any tick box that saved anybody's life? The third thing that happens is that hundreds of social workers left the profession because they couldn't apply their judgment, their experience, their training anymore. They had a tick-box risk assessment. And the fourth thing that happened was that more children were killed by their carers in the year after than ever before. This is what we do. We throw everything out, out, get get a head to roll, uh, rewrite it, lose experience, and actually go backwards. And I thought, we can't do that anymore. We've got to be resilient and stick to it. And so when I moved uh, to the north of England uh, to be chief in uh, 2011, first thing that struck me was that there was a campaign, there was a, some articles being written by the Times newspaper about some ad hoc cases of child sexual abuse. Uh, and, um, uh, and I thought, well, well, maybe I should explore this. And I asked my teams, have you got anything like this in, in, your, um, uh, you know, in your filing cabinets? And, and they brought this particular case to me, which you now know as the Walshdale Grooming Gang case. Again, if you've got a... Uh, Netflix, this time. Uh, the BBC film Three Girls uh, is that case. The actor who played me is much more handsome than I am. I'm happy to take that. Um, but that case is that film. So, what happened is in 2008, a young girl goes into a takeaway restaurant in, in North Manchester and starts smashing it up. And she's arrested by the police. When, to police. when she goes to the police station, she says, The reason I was doing that is because I've been sexually abused by the men in that, in that particular place. Uh, and the police then carry out a really cack handed uh, investigation. 11 months. Investigation is a very strong word for chats with some people. Um, it lasted 11 months, at the end of which they, they formed a view. Um, this girl would never be credible. Uh, she had a very chaotic and troubled background, um, and uh, for all sorts of reasons, they wouldn't, didn't think that she would give evidence or stand up to scrutiny in a, in a court. The two prosecutors, to their, to their great shame, uh, took the same view, and nothing happened in 2009. So those girls, more and more girls, were now being abused by the same group of men. So by the time it came to me in 2011, uh, there were, we knew of 47 girls that were being abused by, by nine men. And I was told, you know, I looked at, I watched the, I mean, given what I've been, just been told about, uh, we can't believe them, I sat down and listened to the evidence that they had, uh, they had given, the video evidence that they would given. And I said, well, I believe them. If I believe them, why shouldn't a jury believe them? And by the way, if a jury do not believe them, it's our fault. We didn't provide the level of support they need. We didn't give them um, the guidance and, and whatever it needs to make them feel comfortable to be able to give their best evidence. And then, then, there's some, then somebody said, and we've got another major obstacle here, having not prosecuted, having said that we can't, these girls aren't credible, how do we tell a jury that we've changed our mind? You know, how, how can we persuade the jury that they're credible when we didn't think they were credible? I said, look, this is, this is what we do. Maybe be a big thing for you, but this is what we do. We admit we were wrong. That silence that you heard is exactly what I heard. And I said, hang on a minute. There's a legal test called Wensbury Unreasonable. Unreasonable. Any lawyers in the room will know that. If it's unreasonable, we can revisit it. I said, no, fuck, fuck, excuse me, fucking reasonable. It was wrong. And we say it was wrong. And if we tell the jury, members of the jury, we got it wrong, we, we believe her that we, we, we'll deal with that particular obstacle. And so we did that. We proceeded on that basis. And then we put all sorts of... There was no uh, guidance available... Um, about what support you provide these victims. Um, so we put bespoke guidance in, uh, available to them. Uh, we made a judgment. I made a judgment. Only six victims should give evidence. The other 41 or so were having all sorts of trauma in their lives. Uh, I didn't want to... They didn't, didn't need them to give evidence. I had enough against the nine involving those six. And we, uh, after a four-month trial at Liverpool Crown Court, those men were convicted. And we also charged, for the first time ever in this country, internal trafficking. They'd been trafficked for sex internally in this country. And we thought, we'll try it. And we got it. And we got that convicted. And that was a case uh, where every single day, the far right were outside Liverpool Crown Court um, making a fuss of themselves. And when you, whenever you hear Stephen Jackson-Lennon and his type saying how much they stand up for victims and how it's all about victims, re- let me remind you what, that, what was happening in that trial. Outside that court, they were attacking defence defense lawyers. They were attacking witnesses. It got to the point where at one point, The defence advocate said to the judge, "Um, this case cannot proceed, it's not safe for us to do that. And the judge came that close to saying, I agree, this is a mistrial, this case must stop. And if it had stopped, we would never have got those girls back into a courtroom, ever. They would never have got justice. So whenever they turn around to you and say, it's about the victims, remind them that that's how close we got to losing the the case in relation to those victims, so those victims didn't get justice. And then May 2012 was a month I will never forget for all sorts of reasons. One, initially, uh, the world suddenly discovered child sexual abuse. Oh, my God, it's happening. I didn't didn't realize it was happening. And uh, so it was important for me... So I was writing on the back of one case. I'm now the world's expert, apparently. Uh, so, Times, everybody, can you explain? I, I was explaining, trying to explain what was happening. Was the ethnicity an issue? I said, ethnicity was an issue, but not the issue. The issue was that these girls were left behind, unlistened to, unheard, treated with disdain by authorities, uh, and, and because they were able, because we weren't listening to them, uh, the abusers would act upon that. One one in, little interesting thing I, I learned at that time was that many of the many of the victims were were, were living in care, and I said to the police, um, "Didn't you know where they, where where they were?" You know, and the police said to me, uh, "No, because of data protection, we're not allowed to know where the care homes were." And I said, "Guess who did know where the care homes were? <laughs> the predators were outside every day." But that you know, so all this all this stuff was coming out, which I hadn't appreciated, and there and then these young girls were. Uh, well, obviously, I know them well, well enough to be able to, to share some of this with you. They said, you know, the things that were driving us into these men's hands were warmth, transport, food, mind-numbing substances. Well, that's what groomers do. Groomers manipulate. They know exactly what buttons to press, and they press those buttons. And so all of the, I was trying to explain all of this, and, and uh, somebody called Cameron, David Cameron, I don't know, he rang, he rang me up and said, Nazir, what's going on? Right. And uh, I thought, Prime Minister, you should know. You know? But I gave him a, 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 as I say, idiot's guide, and uh, you know, so I, was, I was doing this and I was talking to parliamentarians and I was trying to explain what was going on, and then something really funny happened. Now, before I tell you what funny happened, let me go back ten years to uh, uh, seven years or something, five years to a case I dealt with involving uh, Islamist extremism. Um, dealt with it, or pro- properly dealt with, etc. Then I get a visit from Special Branch. Um, Nazir, we, we're here to tell you that we found your name on an Al Qaeda hit list. I said, oh, OK. Um, so what now? He said, no, that's our legal duty, just to tell you... <laughs> I said, that's very kind of you, thank you. Uh, and I went home. I sent my family away for a week. I thought that would make a difference. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but I dealt with it. I coped with it, and somehow... But now, we're 2011 2012, we're now dealt with um, the Roshtail case. Then the far-right discoverings... Just, just, they're quite slow at this. They discovered that their narrative was destroyed by me. Their narrative was that everybody, brown person or minority, was a criminal. And everybody knew that I was the one that brought the prosecution. So hang on a minute, that can't be true. And so they put together pretty much the first example of fake news I've ever come across. They put stuff on Facebook and whatever. Nazir Abzal was the one in 2008 that didn't prosecute them. Despite everybody knowing the opposite. This is where sometimes I worry about truth and integrity. But anyway, um, and their followers went for it. So, having prosecuted the most serious, horrible criminals in 20-odd years by then, uh, and never, ever being affected personally, suddenly I had a group of far-right thugs outside of my house. Suddenly, I had to have a police officer outside of my door for two weeks, uh, because that was the security advice I was given. You know, I had to teach my, tell my children the Prime Minister's got a police officer outside his door, you know, to make them feel reassured in some way. I had panic alarms placed in the house, I had to teach my... What was an eight-year-old how to use a panic alarm in case somebody tried to break in. You know, I got 17,000 emails in 24 hours to me and my teams calling for me to be sacked and deported. Now, I'm from Birmingham, I don't want to go back there, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen. But they were, they were absolutely <laughs> determined to destroy me, and they nearly did. My kids could only go to school in a taxi for three months, because, again, that was the security advice I was given. If it wasn't for my staff and my colleagues around me and my family... I have no doubt that would have destroyed me. I remember on one occasion my PA running down the corridor with a letter that had been sent in. I won't even bother telling you what was in the letter. Saying, don't show him the letter. They protected me from... And yet I was the one that got every decision right. Every decision. And I realised actually, right, how do I respond to this? Well, I could do one of two things. I could resign and go off and have an easier life. Or I can do something about it. And I decided that the latter... That if we got this case wrong, how many other cases have we got wrong? How many other cases do we need to put right? And so um, my, 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 my boss at the time, Keir Starmer, what happened to him? Right? Um, I persuaded Keir, right, we need to have a national panel where we invite prosecutors and police officers from around the country to send in the cases that they're concerned about, which they may have changed, you know, which... They made a decision on but needs to be revisited. And that panel is still going. Ten years later, it's led to dozens and dozens of cases being reinstituted uh, because we didn't prosecute in the first place. I brought in the first-ever national guidelines for prosecutors, the first-ever national guidelines for police officers. We changed the whole system. And before people say, you know, well, it must have been Jimmy Savile or something else that changed it. No, Rochdale was before Savile. Six months later, we discovered that Savile was the most horrific predator, one of the most horrific predators we know. Um, But the big thing that needed to change, and again, credit to Keir for this, I said to him, the way we got this wrong was we didn't believe her. We should start by believing her, as we would do if you were burgled. If you were burgled, has a police officer ever said to you, I don't think you've been burgled? (laughs) But when it comes to sexual abuse, hmm. sure yeah so we changed that we put in a policy that did that second thing we do uh, was let's let's start investigating the suspect shall we don't investigate the victim her credibility which is what we always did let's investigate the suspect and so we started doing that and we brought in seismic change in a short space of time you mentioned Stuart Hall Uh, and Max Clifford and Wolf Harris, uh, you know, dozens and dozens, people you don't even know, dozens and dozens of predators were now being brought to justice. Stuart Hall's a good case in point, actually, uh, for another reason. Um, He was convicted of the abuse of 12 women and girls going back 30 years. And he was found not guilty of one. Uh, He pleaded guilty to 11, found guilty of one, found not guilty of one. I went to see the one woman now in her, well, she was in her 30s at the time, and I said to her, I'm really sorry that I couldn't give you closure. And she looked me in the eye and said, Nazir, you gave me closure the moment you believed me. That's where it starts. Now, we've pushed back on that as well over the last few years. But that's what made the difference. And by the time we got to 2016 or 15, when I left the CPS, we'd gone from being shit, that's a legal phrase, um, (laughs) to the highest conviction rate for the abuse of children in our history. Predators were filling the prisons faster than we could find them. And that is a good place to be. We've gone backwards. We've gone backwards because resourcing has gone. Just last year, uh, I've lost track of time, last year, a year before last, uh, the National Crime Survey said that 3.1 million adults in this country were sexually abused as children. Shall I say that again? 3.1 million. That means that one in 20 of us told that survey that we were sexually abused as children. I won't even guess how many people in this room, but that means every classroom. That means pretty much every neighbourhood will have abused children in it. That's the epidemic that will outlive, or pandemic, that will outlive this pandemic. And that just gives you... And that's an underestimate, because NAPAC, who run the national helpline, said that one in seven of their calls were people who've never, ever disclosed to anybody. So we know 3.1 million is an underestimate. That is what we have to deal with. And we can't deal with that with fewer police officers, fewer prosecutors, fewer people in children's services, NGOs struggling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when people talk about the police officer's numbers, I'm not getting political here. I'm telling you just facts. 21,000 police officers is not 21,000 police officers. It's half a million years of experience. You do not replace half a million years of experience with new officers from police academy. You do not replace thousands of prosecutors, defense attorneys, um, all the people that we've lost over the years, overnight. And so we've gone backwards to the point where if I asked you to stand and said that all of you in this room were representative of the number of rapes last year, I would only ask you two to remain standing as the two that we prosecuted. That is where we are now. 1.5% of rapes in this country end up being prosecuted. And it's worse than that, because I would only be asking you to remain standing as the person that was convicted. 1% of all the rapes that take place that were reported to police, and again, that's an important word here, reported to police. Just think about those that haven't been reported to police. So we're in a bad place right now. We're in a bad place, but we know what works, because we've worked it. For four or five years, we worked it really hard and really well and got to a really good place, but we've lost all of that. So whenever I hear somebody say, uh, by somebody, I mean the current government say, everything's hunky-dory, no, it's not. And that's not to scare you, that's simply a matter of fact as to where we are and what we need to do differently. So I moved on, I left the service, I decided to move on to, uh, you mentioned the Police and Crime Commissioner role, Uh, They wouldn't let me talk publicly. I live in Manchester. The Manchester Arena bombing happened. Um, Two things about that bombing, which you probably haven't thought about. One is, why did you choose Ariana Grande's event? Why did you choose an event where 95% of the people were women? women? Hmm? That was targeted. Targeted. He had a history of domestic abuse, by the way. Again, something you may not have picked picked up on. And second thing was that I had... People from the communities, the Muslim communities, are coming to my door, literally coming to my door, and saying, Nazir, please say something. We need reassurance. We need people to... Because hate crime was spiking, et cetera. And so I told my board, uh, can you let me speak on this? And they said no. And I said, right, I am now resigning. And I walked out the door. And I spent three months with no money in my back pocket. Uh, my family was struggling, but I made the best of every opportunity I could talk about the subject to try and provide the reassurance, to provide... Uh, as much evidence as I possibly could about what we were dealing with, and ultimately, uh, I think, to uh, respond to those terrible events in the the most positive way that we could. I decided then it was clear I I no longer wanted to work for anybody anymore. And so I've taken on a gamut of independent roles. You've just mentioned a few. I'm also, ladies and gentlemen, the first ever chair of the Catholic Church's Safeguarding Agency. A right? uh, brand new regulator that's in place to check on safeguarding in the Catholic Church. <laughs> right? I'm also chair of London Fire Brigade's Review of Culture in the immediate aftermath of Grenfell. You know? I'm chair of the college you mentioned. I take on responsibilities where I think I can make a difference because to make a difference you've got to act differently. Simple as that. I, I will not do anything that, that I can do in my sleep. I sleep four hours a night, by the way. So I, you know, I make the most of my 20 hours in the most fulfilling possible way that I possibly can. But why is it worth it? I'll finish, I'll finish with this story because I think it's important to inter- interact with you. Why is it worth it? Two months ago, I, I have a website which I have not updated for decades, <laughs> I think, but it's got a contact page and people contact me. And I got this contact. And it said, Dear Mr. Afsel, um you won't remember me, um, but I was the victim of Uh, ex-historical abuse case uh, that happened when I was a child. But 10 years ago, you helped deliver justice for me, and the man was convicted. I now have terminal cancer. I have a few weeks to live, and I want you to know that the last 10 years of my life have been the happiest years of my life. I had no way of responding to that. I spent three days walking around. Do I thank her? How do I respond to that? I did in the end. But the important thing was that Her life began when she was believed. That's where we must start, and that's where we must end. Thank you.